Looks like we have just about everyone here, and uh, we're going to get started. We're going to uncover the drum, and we'll have a prayer at the drum to begin. Um, I always use uh, some jola or tobacco with our prayers. Um, Jola, the, the spirit of Jola, the spirit of tobacco is a prayer carrier. It lifts, lifts our prayers up to Uahale, the spirit of eagle, the golden eagle, who takes our prayers up to Uhalotika, Netlanahi, creator, portioner. And um, so that's why we use the tobacco. And so we're going we're gonna to pray at the drum here, and then, uh, and then I'll talk some more to you. Ani eli witigalista hadna teskai naskia garadari jinagalistiha nira dora kuisoglistia diskasko hihukatigeska skwandeska dukoi naskia jirigajon jorjidugi aleklasir gariadi gaisu riskatin stanagiski jiliskis tkos kniogesai anere kotulu di dohida anere ahisti ustadu hadna teskai udo teski udo udo for for this beautiful day udo for the, the drum, the heartbeat of the people, and for those who gave themselves to, to make this drum. Uh, would offer these who are sitting around a drum, bless each one, bless each in a larger circle, bless all our relatives and all their relations, would all they make us part of your great creation. help us sing in a good way. I want to I want to tell a story to begin with a shortened version, but uh, it's it's a story that's important to understanding everything that I'm trying to say here today, and um, it's a story uh, it, it's it's Doxy Ale Oahia or, or Doxy Doxy and the Wolves, um, and in the old days, all the animals were much larger than they are today. And you know the little box turtle, terrapin? Uh, we call him Doxy. And in the old days, his shell was 10 feet long. He was big, he was enormous, and he was a great warrior. And, and um, he was captured one day by some, some wolves uh, bent on vengeance. And um, they, they, they had talked about what to do with him and finally decided to throw him off a bluff into the river. Which seemed like a, not such a bad thing for Doxy because he was a pretty good swimmer back in those days. And so he wasn't real concerned about being thrown off a high bluff into the river. It, that seemed a lot better than being burned alive or boiled alive, the other alternatives that the wolves had come up with. And so, uh, so but, but when he was tumbling down off this cliff toward the river, Doxy realized a couple of things. And, and number one, he realized that the, the water in the river was very shallow at this point. And number two, he realized that, that the bottom of the river at this place was just one big, enormous rock. And the third thing he realized was he could die today. And so he crashed down through the water, crashed into that enormous rock, and his shell burst into fragments. And he lay there in the water in, in terrible pain, and his blood was flowing down the stream. And all those wolves standing 
up above him watching this. And Doxy could have died that day, but he reached out one arm and he pulled himself forward. He reached out the other and he pulled himself forward. And he pulled himself forward and he, he went all the way over to the far bank and he pulled himself up on the bank, laying there just in pieces, bleeding. And right there, then Doxy began to sing. I sold myself together. That's what he sang. And as Doxy sang, the fragments of his shell began to come together. And he continued to sing. And as the fragments came together, they fused together. And finally, Doxy got up and he walked away. <coughs> now, he walked away that day much smaller than he had been before. And he walked away that day much more humble than he'd ever been. And from that day to this, he's never cared much about going in the water. But Doxy walked that way that day and he was still Doxy. He was still the one the Creator made him to be. Okay. So, um, to know who I am, you have to know a little bit, at least, of the history of my people. And um, so I'm, I'm going to start a long time ago uh, with uh, just to say a little bit about American Indian life before 1492. And, and really, to preface this, what I'm talking about tonight, uh, the, the title of, of what I'm, of the talk, I guess, is Singing Ourselves Together, Chickamauga Cherokee History and current cultural restoration. And um, the history that I'm going to relate is not anything near complete. Uh, to find complete history, you've got to really dig and you've got to really study. But at the same time, a lot of what I'm going to say today, you've probably never heard before. Again, you know, I, I hope this, this will um, inspire you to learn more and, and to study more about the history of this country. Um, there's really not such a thing as Chickamauga Cherokee history or Indian history or, or African American history or European American history. There's just history because we're all involved, right? We're all involved together. And, uh, and, and if you leave one people's out, then you don't know the story. So um, anyway, American Indian life before 1492. By all accounts, life was not bad. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, in this country at that time, there, there were no poor because there were no rich. We had agricultural economies. And by agricultural, by agriculture, I don't mean just farming, but we farmed. Uh, 
but, but it's not just what, what you would think of as farming. We also involved ourselves in hunting and in gathering, and yet y you need to really think of, of our hunting and gathering operations. It's, it's been termed mega management in the sense that we partnered together with the earth, with the land, with the, the plants and the animals of the land, the other peoples, we, we saw them all as other peoples of the land. We partnered together, everything partnered together, and, and the whole country was like one huge farm. You know, east of the Mississippi River, every fourth tree was a chestnut, and that was by design. That was by plan, okay? So, um, but, but yeah, there was, there was farming too. Um, and our diets were actually the most diverse and richest on the earth. Um, we also had a vast pharmacopoeia of uh, medicinal plants that we knew and that we used. And um, clothing was appropriate for the weather. We didn't wear three-piece suits in July. Um, but clothing was appropriate for the weather. And clothing, you know, the, the stereotype is that we used animal skins. Well, we did. But we also had, had cloth made from plant fibers. We Cherokees, one thing, uh, you know, we made cloth from uh, mo the inner bark of mulberries that you can beat that down and, and you can make, uh, you know, weave cloth from that. But we also had cotton. And, and get this. The, the only cotton that has long enough fibers in order to weave into cloth is American cotton. There's cotton that was like in India and, and uh, Egypt and other places, but the fibers were so short you could only use it for batting. And so people over there, if you were poor, if you had cloth at all, it was, it was wool, winter and summer. You know, if you're rich, you know, you might have silk in some parts of the, of the country or some parts of the world. But anyway, uh, so we had, we had uh, actually more, more uh, uh, different kinds of material for clothing. And uh, our houses, average house in the Americas was larger than the average house and not larger and more comfortable than the average house in Europe of the time. Um, there was more leisure time in the Americas than there was for people in Europe at the time. The life expectancy in the Americas was much larger or long, longer than it was in Europe, although it was about to become much shorter. Um, focusing on the Cherokees, my own people, uh, we Cherokees have three terms of self-reference. And I'm going to talk about the, the, probably what the oldest one is first, is, is uh, Aniawea. Aniawea basically means the, the real people, or the common people, unpretentious people. That's what Aniawea means. Then there's another term, is, is Anikitua. Anikitua is a reference... Katua is a word that it can mean the primary place, 
like the first place, it can mean a high place, or it can mean the place of creator or the place of creation. Katua is actually our first town where we were Cherokees or, or where we were a people. Um, and so it's, it's like our place of creation as a people. And that's uh, actually is Bryson City, North Carolina, or near where Bryson City, North Carolina is. Actually, Katua has probably been engulfed by Bryson City, North Carolina. And Katua Mound is still there to this day. But um, then there's one other term of self-reference is Anijalagi. And Anijalagi, um, the term Cherokee kind of comes from that, but kind of not. Um, you see, the Choctaws called us, the Choctaws heard us say that we were Anijalagi, so they thought, that means, that sounds like something in our language. Sounds like Chalaki, which means cave people, or people in the cave country. And so that's what they called us. Choctaws called us that. And then uh, the Europeans heard the Choctaws use that, and that morphed into Cherokee. So that's where Cherokee comes from. But Anijalagi has meaning in our language, and it means the people of the red fire. So, um, Katua in North Carolina, what is now North Carolina, our people uh, were there. I mean, archaeology pretty much says, okay, we've been there since 10,000 years ago at Katua. Now, we've got oral tradition that goes back farther than that, especially our clan stories, our clan origin stories go back farther than 10,000 years. So we got stories that talk about the, the megafauna, the big animals. A lot of our stories do. And um, even the one that I just related about Doxy the Terrapin talks about how all the animals used to be much bigger than the ones of today. Ones of today are but shadows of those that once were. Um, so we've been around a long time. The sacred fire, the Ajila uh, Garakodiu, the fire from heaven and sacred fire has been with our people for 5,103 years, give or take a couple years. Um, and, and that started at Katua Mound. Like I said, it's Bryson, North Carolina, Bryson City, North Carolina today. Cherokee country, um, at one time it was um, western North Carolina, southern Virginia, part of southern West Virginia, uh, about two-thirds of Kentucky and Tennessee, northern Alabama, northern Georgia, northwestern South Carolina. Big, big country. And that doesn't mean that we didn't share that with other peoples. It, you know, don't think of it in terms of that there's a wall around this country and that people can't come and go because that's not the way it was. Okay, we had... Uh, uh, there were, there were cultural boundaries, so to speak, but, but there weren't border walls. Okay, so uh, we were part of what, what we call, what we call, could be called accurately the mound builder culture, because in, in, a, in the center of our towns, there was generally a mound where the sacred fire was kept, and there would be a council house there. Sometimes in larger towns and cities, there would be two mounds, and so actually you would have a council house and the, the house for the sacred fire, two different, two different mounds. Um, 
So each town was, oh, just to describe the town a little more. So the, there would be the, the mound, the central mound, with the, uh, the council house or temple, and around that, people's houses, and sometimes a palisade, uh, a wall, okay. They didn't have a wall around the country, but there might be one around the town. And then uh, outside of that was fields, thousands of acres of cultivated agricultural land. And uh, so we didn't live in the woods. So this whole thing about woodland Indians is kind of a misnomer. Uh, there would be miles, a few miles between where our town was and the woods. And even though, you know, the woods were open, more like uh, savanna country because they were managed or we were in partnership in that sense. And, and we used fire a lot to, uh, to keep the woods from being overgrown and and uh, so there, there were actually more animals and, uh, and lots of herbal plants in amongst the trees and everything like that. So um, each town was autonomous. There was no centralized government, no principal chief in the old days. Uh, it was, it was a, a, a loosely connected network of uh, autonomous towns. And that's, that's how we were. Um, and we were self-governed according to a system of seven clans. And so there's these seven clans, and each clan has a clan mother, and there's a council of clan mothers, and the council of clan mothers helps to find the consensus of the people in doing all kinds of things. Consensus, not... not uh, majority rule, but consensus rule. And so then they, they, they have a uku, which is a peace chief who kind of takes care of the, the internal issues and he's also kind of, he's a high priest. And then there's a, the kalana or the uh, war chief who takes care of more outside issues. And so, uh, but the clan mothers are the ones who could impeach and throw out of office a chief as well. So uh, they, had, they had quite a bit of power, and it's still the way it's done in some places. Um, Cherokee household consisted of, of a grandmother, and it was her house, by the way, grandmother, grandfather, um, the grandmother's daughters, along with her husbands, and their children. Now, when their daughters got old enough almost to be married, then that husband had to build a, a house for his wife. Okay, start a new household. But it's, it's like a, it, it, it was a system, it's not, it's not uh, matriarchal, not, it was not a matriarchal system, but it's not a patriarchal system either. It was a matrilineal system and a matrilocal system. So the, uh, the women, they stayed with their own clan, and then the men would come and, uh, you know, move in with the wife. And so it kind of, you know, spouse abuse, child abuse, kind of goes out the window with a system like that because, I mean, because, you know, divorce was real easy too. All you have to do is kick the guy stuff out the door, and he's out of there. Um, so... Um, 
So the, the Cherokee, a Cherokee house was rectangular, and you know it, it wasn't all that big. I said it was bigger than, than houses in Europe. That doesn't mean it's very big. Houses in Europe back then, unless you were a king and had a castle, uh, the, their houses in Europe were tiny. Uh, but these uh, these houses were pretty small too, and and people, you know, they cooked and ate in the houses and slept, and did most of their living outdoors. But you know, it was a rectangular house with beds around the walls, and, and they look kind of like bunk beds, but the top bunk is for storage. And the bottom bunk, it has a deer skin curtain around it, and that's, that's your only privacy. And then there's a, there's a cooking fire in the middle of the house. Um, it's kind of short version. It, it's Waddle and Daub. Waddle and Daub house, kind of, a, kind of like stucco with thatched roof. And in some towns, all the houses were red, and in some towns, all the houses were white. And there's a reason for that. I won't get into it right now. But um, we encountered DeSoto in 1540. Uh, that was our, our first uh, encounter with Europeans. Uh, Spanish tried to colonize uh, what's now the, the Carolinas a couple of times and were unsuccessful in that. And the second time they tried to do that, there was actually they actually had gold mines in the Cherokee country. They had they had established a colony that reached all the way from the coast all the way into the Cherokee country, and there was communication back and forth among all the different Indians within this area, and it was decided that on this one particular day we're going to kill all the Spanish because what they were doing was not very nice and to. That's a big understatement. But anyway, um, so all the Spanish were killed except one little boy who was put on the next passing ship. And so the, the Spanish never established uh, permanent settlements in Cherokee country. But then, uh, then the English came and, and history got really complex. English were worse than the Spanish. There lots of wars, lots of epidemics. And the English tried to figure out how they could um, subdue the Cherokees, how they could control the Cherokees, and there didn't seem to be any way because the Cherokees didn't have a centralized government. And so the English had, had to figure out a way to change that. And so they took, uh, they took seven, what they called chiefs, to England to meet the king. These weren't chiefs, they were teenage boys, impressionable teenage boys that the English were determined to make chiefs of that they could use as puppets. And so they took them to England and, and got them to sign a treaty with the king and um, they brought them back. And, and a man named Atagalcala was, uh, was one of these teenage boys. Uh, the, the, uh, the English called him Atagalcala, or sometimes they called him the Little Carpenter, which is his, his kind of a nickname. Um, in 1756, uh, reluctantly, the Cherokees sent 400 troops to fight on the English side in the, in the French and Indian, what's called the French and Indian War. It's, it's a war between the French and the English, but there were Indians fighting on both sides, mostly in front lines. So uh, Cherokees went, but it was a disaster, and we were, our people were treated so badly in that war that actually it prompted a, a, a war within a war between the Cherokees and colonists in North Carolina. So uh, uh, that, that didn't go very well. And then in, um, 
1775, Atagalcala signed the chief Atagalcala. He was, he was principal chief now. He, uh, he signed the illegal treaty of Watauga. And this was the largest private land grab in um, North American history. And that's why it was illegal. It was, it was a private company getting land from, from the Indians and, and it, a big part of Tennessee. In fact, that, that's the basis even today of, of, uh, of the state of Tennessee was that Treaty of Watauga, which was illegal, internationally illegal. Um, well, it split the Cherokee Nation. It was 70, 1775. It split the Cherokees into two factions. So there was the acceptance faction, the ones who would accept um, basically European rule, accept um, European colonization, and the resistance faction, those who said, you know, we're going to draw a line. Now the resistance faction came to be called Chickamaugas because um, we set up our main town along Chickamauga Creek in North Georgia. And so that's why they called us Chickamaugas. Mostly we called ourselves Aniawea. But um, the other faction became known as the Cherokee Nation. And so Chickamaugas, we kept a line, actually we kept a line on uh, expansion in Tennessee and Kentucky and other places for about 20 years even after the Revolutionary War, after the English kind of copped out on us. But uh, we, were, we were on the English side during the Revolutionary War. The, uh, the other Cherokees actually were trying to stay neutral but Rutherford and uh, Severe would come in with troops into the neutral towns and would hit the neutral towns, burn the neutral towns. And uh, anybody that didn't flee, get out, they got killed. But then the Chickamaugas would go in and those guys didn't want anything to do with encountering Chickamaugas, so they'd get out. And uh, they didn't want to uh, battle with Chickamaugas. So anyway, um, our leader at that time was a man named Giu Gansini, or Dragging Canoe. And uh, so Dragging Canoe helped work to put together this, this big confederacy. It wasn't just Chickamauga Cherokees, but it was other Indian people who came together in a confederacy. And not just Indian people. We had African-American people. We had uh, uh, Scots-Irish. And, and other European people. That doesn't mean all the Scots-Irish. I mean, Scots-Irish were some of the, the worst genocidal uh, pioneers there were. Uh, you know, you take all the Scots-Irish out of the, out of the, the rangers and the, the uh, uh, militias that were forming up to kill Indian people, uh, and you wouldn't have many other people left because they, they were the, the main ones. But some Scots-Irish sided with Chickamauga Cherokees and became part of us. And we called them Aniwea too, along with the, the African-American people and, and people of other uh, tribes that came amongst us. And so we actually became, in that time, we, we became essentially a, uh, a tri-racial people, if you can use that term. I, I would put quotes around racial because I don't believe in it, uh, but 
you know, it, it's a cons construct that is real in the sense that it has meaning, um, but it doesn't have meaning biologically. It has meaning politically and, and uh, whatnot, ideologically, I guess. But um, so we became basically triracial people in, in that time. And um, so then uh, Gio Gonsini died in 1792, and that, that kind of, uh, there, there was kind of a leadership vacuum for a while with Chickamaugas. We didn't really have a central, a good centralized leader. Uh, now the Cherokee Nation will say, oh, well, uh, Doublehead was the leader and then we killed him. Uh, Cherokee Nation killed him. And so then there are no more Chickamaugas because they all came back. Well, that's, that's uh, one version of history, but that's not the Chickamauga version of history. Okay, actually most of us, a lot of us, well, some of us, some of us went and joined up with the Miami Confederacy, which was kind of a offshoot of the Chickamauga Confederacy and actually whipped the United States military twice, almost wiped out the United States military twice in Ohio. Um, and then later, there was uh, Tecumseh, Tenskwatawa, and the coalition they put together. And Chickamaugas were part of that. But many Chickamaugas went west um, to Spanish country, Missouri. What's now Missouri, southeast Missouri. And uh, we lived in southeast Missouri, uh, big Cher Cherokee uh, settlement was around New Madrid and um, Metlacita town that was right there on the outskirts of New Madrid. And actually Cherokees up until in, in the 1790s and up until um, the New Madrid earthquake in about what? 1812-1813, Cherokees formed the largest ethnicity in southeast Missouri during that time. Of course, Cherokees had been there even before there were Chickamaugas, there were Cherokees in eastern Missouri. Uh, Cherokees made war against the French in Missouri, uh, what's now Missouri, in 1750. The French had to sign a treaty with us in order to mine lead. So, um, but. Uh, those Cherokees that had been here before kind of banded together with Chickamaugas coming in later and uh, kind of became one people. Um, so then, um, let's see, the Gilagarquadillo was kept there uh, in Metlacita town. The, uh, the, that's the sacred fire. Um, was kept in Metlacita town on a mound that it was called the Hearst Mound. It's not there now. It, it was used as a levee fill later on. But it's actually, where the Hearst Mound was is actually within the bounds of, of uh, New Madrid, Missouri. And so it was kept there until 1813 and then it was moved to White Raven Grounds down Arkansas near, uh, as, along the Norfolk River near the present town of uh, Mountain Home, Arkansas. And it was moved there in 1813. A Cherokee reservation was established in Arkansas in 1817. And the United States wanted all Cherokees to move there, but they didn't. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of Chickamaugas moved there. 
but a lot didn't. You know, there were still Chickamaugas in the, in the east and they moved there and some from Missouri moved there, some who were scattered around in Arkansas, but a lot didn't, but some did. I had ancestors that were on that reservation. Um, okay, in about 1820, there were some Cherokees went from Arkansas into Texas. Again, get, get away from the United States. Um, so they were kind of refugees and they, they went to Texas, got a Spanish land grant in Texas. And there were actually two groups of Chickamauga Cherokees in Texas at the time. There was a group um, with Diwali and that was kind of um, eastern Texas but not kind of east central Texas. And Diwali's group was, was there and that's called the, uh, the Texas Cherokees and Associated Bands. There were like 8,000 people involved in that. And then th there were those who were closer to the Red River, uh, North Texas, and that was, um, that was with uh, uh, Dachi, or Dutch, who was actually a brother of Sequoia. You've probably heard of Sequoia. And, um, and some of my ancestors were with, were with that group. So um, then uh, in 1829, the reservation in Arkansas was dissolved. Um, in, in the late 1830s, Cherokee Nation that was still in the east was forcibly removed. And many Cherokees died in the removal. Many more deserted the trail. More deserted than died, according to records that were kept at the time. And more, most of those who deserted, deserted in Missouri and Arkansas, areas where there were Chickamauga Cherokees living and where they could take refuge with Chickamauga people. Um, and so, the, uh, but the, the people who came, who were removed into what's now Oklahoma, they got together and they wanted to really bring all the Cherokees of the West together into one group. And so they called a council and they invited the chiefs from Arkansas and Missouri to come to that council. Only two showed up. Two that lived you know, pretty close to Fort Smith, Arkansas, right on the border. They came and nobody else did. And it said that they said, you know, two is enough. And so then they kind of pretended that they had all the Cherokees back together. Um, and they named the town Tahlequa. It's still named that to this day. Um, 1839, the Republic of Texas declared a war against the Cherokees, and, uh, and, and they killed a lot of Cherokees. Cherokees in Texas kind of scattered. Some went back to Arkansas and to Missouri. Some went to Mexico. Some went to, to the Cherokee Nation, Oklahoma. Some managed to stay in Texas, went farther west into Texas. Some even associated with the Comanches in Texas. Um, late 1800s was the Dawes Act, which um, basically dissolved Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma, uh, allotting the land and giving extra land that wasn't allotted to, to white settlers. Um, okay, in uh, 1978, the Cherokee Nation Oklahoma regained federal recognition. Um, United Ketua Band is also a, a federally recognized Cherokee group uh, 
in, in Oklahoma. Uh, there's also uh, the Eastern Band in North Carolina made up of those who, who managed to stay there and finally gained state recognition and later federal recognition. Um, there are many organized Cherokee tribal groups uh, that, that are primarily Chickamauga Cherokees. None of those are federally recognized. And in Missouri and Arkansas and Kansas, none of those are even state recognized and probably never will be. Uh, and, and that's probably not such a bad thing um, because to accept federal recognition is to accept a, a dependent status, uh, a subservient status. It, it's to be that acceptance faction. And Chickamaugas have never been the acceptance faction. So, but, you know, I, I will say that that there are Chickamauga groups or people who are, are Chickamauga descent who have been trying for years to gain federal recognition. I just never could figure that out. Um, there was a time when armed resistance proved uh, futile and uh, to remain on the land, our people scattered like quail. Um, our prophet, Chickamauga Cherokee prophet, Clear Sky or Iskagua, had spoken of a time when he said, he said, a time is coming when maybe our people will have to intermarry more with whites in order to hide ourselves. And he said, this is to hide ourselves, not to, not to, it's so we can survive for another day. But the problem with that was that much identity confusion came of that and, and also a shift in normativity has come from that that is with us to this day. Um, but in Missouri, there came a time, and it was about a hundred years long, when people could no longer openly identify as Indian. It was illegal to be an Indian in Missouri. And, um, and in both Missouri and Arkansas, it was really imperative to be Christian, to be a member of some church. And so uh, even our people who were traditionals, they tried to go along with that. They said, well, well, we'll join a church, you know, we'll be a member of a church, but we'll keep our traditions. But the, the, the trouble with that is, too, that after a few generations, it's the church that becomes the thing, you know, the religion, and it's hard to get back. So we did keep the fire. The sacred fire um, was kept at uh, the White Raven Grounds down in Arkansas until the 1890s, and then it was moved to Little Beaver Grounds which is actually in Butler County, Missouri, more southeast Missouri. And it, it, that was east of Poplar Bluff along the St. Francis River, uh, between St. Francis River and uh, Little Beaver Creek. And it was kept there from about the 1890s up till 1918 when the sacred fire was put to sleep because there was nobody who could maintain it any longer. Like I said, it was illegal to even be an Indian in Missouri. And it was illegal to keep Indian ceremonies anywhere in this country at that time. And so people who were keeping those ceremonies, they were, they were taking a big risk. Um, so over the next 75 years, culture bearers kept the seeds of the culture alive. Um, some of these are Black Owl, Dr. Silas Scruggs, Scruggs Stacy, Elmer Castile, 
Uncle Richard Craker. They kept and passed down the way that the fire was kept, the way the ceremonies were kept, many of the old cures, old songs, old formulas, uh, the old stories. But for 75 years, that fire, the sacred fire of our people wasn't kept. Um, then in 1993, Richard Craker, Harry Rogers, and Jerry Painter, they, with uh, ashes from White Raven grounds, ashes from Little Beaver grounds, and ashes from way out there in Bryson City, North Carolina at Catuba Mound, they brought back the sacred fire. And the sacred fire was kept in, in uh, South Missouri. It was kept at a couple different places before it finally came to the Morningstar grounds in a place called the Water Hollow in Ozark County, Missouri in 1999. And it's been there ever since, kept ever since. Kept by uh, uh, Rich, or, uh, Jerry Painter, who's also been at Uku there for a long time. Um, in 2010, Sacred Fire was also brought to the Doxy Gatillo, uh, where I was the firekeeper. And I, I was actually a Morningstar Medicine Society member, and so I was entrusted to do that, to, uh, to bring the fire so there's another place where the fire's at. And now I'm Uku of uh, the Doxy Gatillo. And as far as I know, that's the only two places where that ancient Sacred Fire is kept. I know in uh, in in Cherokee Nation, they they got the fire back uh, from the Muscogee Creeks, and they keep the fire in a in what they call a square grounds, according to the Muscogee Creek tradition. Um, and um, and then I think they've taken it back also to North Carolina, but the the fire we keep is that is the old Gila uh, Galaquidio of the Cherokees. The Catillo is a place where the sacred fire is kept and the clan system is dependent on the sacred fire and the sacred fire is dependent on the clan system and so everything has to be brought back. Everything has to be brought back. And so uh, I'm going to talk a little about Chickamauga Cherokees of today, um, how, how we're continuing the resistance. Um, when hunters come into the field, the quail scatter. But when the hunters leave the field, they come back together. And trouble is, you know, the hunters haven't left the field, but we're trying to regroup. And so it's, it's been real hard. Um, but our people, some of our people, are learning the importance of decolonization and indigenous cultural restoration. Um, decolonization, the way I define it, it's resistance to, escape from, or engagement in a process of freeing oneself from colonizing imperialism. And that goes hand in hand with indigenous cultural restoration. And that requires a, a, a return to indigenous normativity. In other words, that what we do is normal within our culture. What we do is normal for us. And, and it's very hard to, to reinstill that in our people because we still got people trying just to to blend in after all these years. So um, 
Let me tell you something. Uh, in, in 1993, during my prayers, and my, my prayers are always dialogues. During my prayers, I heard very distinctly in my heart, meet me on Desarc. And I, Desarc is a mountain. It's the second highest mountain in Missouri, down in the St. Francis Range, old Chickamauga country. And um, I've been there. I, I deer hunted there in and around on and around Desert Mountain, but I've never been there in like in June, and I thought this is when I'm going to need to go. And it's hard to get to. It, it, nowadays you can't get to it because somebody else bought it and they've got a house by it, and, and uh, you can't go there anymore. But back in those days, you could go there. A uh, guy that owned it didn't live there, he lived somewhere else, and he didn't care. And so, um, Every time I pray, that's all I get. Meet me on Desert. Now get this, I was a Baptist minister. <laughs> you didn't know that part, did you? <laughs> I was a Baptist minister. I'd, I'd been raised basically Christian fundamentalist. And I was a Baptist minister. Now, I, I always kept a few little things. Like when I killed a deer, I talked to its spirit and I ask its pardon. And sometimes those little things that I kept bothered me. And to the extent that I got to thinking, maybe those are idolatrous things that I'm keeping. And I prayed about that. And that's when this happened. And every time I prayed, all I'd get was meet me on Desarc. Meet me on Desarc. So, you know, God wants me on Desarc. I got to go to Desarc. And so I, I talked to my wife about that, and she took me out there as close as she could get. I had to hike the last three or four miles. And this is a big mountain. And as I'm approaching that mountain, I'd heard that it, it had been recently logged and that it was just a real jungle. And this is summertime. You know, going there in deer season, there's no leaves, and you could, you could go up on that mountain, you can see where you're at, but in, in the summertime, it's different. And I thought, how am I gonna find even the top of that mountain? I could get lost on that mountain. I got to the bottom of that mountain and there was a bird that met me there. I'm serious, a red bird like I'd never seen before in my life. It, I could see it flying down the mountain and it lit in a tree real close to me and it twittered at me and it turned around and it flew up the mountain. And I just stood there watching, you know, and it did that again and again until I started following it. And that bird led me up that mountain. I didn't know what kind of bird that was. That bird led, led me up that mountain and stayed with me all the time that I was up there. And I saw a lot of things while I was on that mountain, fasting and praying. And then the day that I was to come down the mountain, I thought, oh, wow, how am I going to find my way down this mountain? Because if I get down and I'm on the wrong side, I'll have to hike so far around, I'm going to run out of water, and, and I could die before I get back to where Janet's supposed to pick me up. And the bird led me down the mountain to exactly the same place where I'd started. 
And I went home, I, I had to look in the bird book to find out what that was. It was they call that a summer tanager. It's the only all red bird, except the female is yellow. And I found out later that the male, when he goes down South America, when they, they, they fly to South America in the winter, he turns yellow and stays yellow down, down South America all through the winter. And he's only red when he comes up here. Cherokees, and I didn't even know this at the time. This bird is, is the daughter of the sun. And there's a, there's a whole long story about that. But this bird is, is the mirror of the sun and the earth. And so, you know, the sun, we, we talk about the sun. The sun is male when it first comes up. And then female as it comes on, in Cherokee way, okay? Almost everybody else says the sun is always male, but Cherokees, the sun, when it's red, it's male. When it's yellow, it's female. Or some say there's two suns. Some say, no, it just, it's just red, it's male, and then it's female. And then it's red again when it's setting, and it's male. Okay, but this bird, you've got this bird, and you'll see him in a tree, and you'll see the male, and he's out closer to you, and your eyes drawn to that red color, and the female is yellowish, she's yellow and greenish, and you may not even see her. She'll be back behind the male a lot of times, unless she's coming to visit you and she's just by herself. And you'll see her then, and she'll twitter at you. And I'd never seen this bird before that day, but since then that bird's always been with me, just uncanny. Every time I've gone out to fast on a hill, that bird's been there, the dojoa, dojoa bird, daughter of the sun. And that bird, um, when we brought the sacred fire to the Doxigatil, the dojoa came there, and they've nested there every year. And it was that bird, that, that spirit of that bird, daughter of the sun, that said, meet me on Desert. And I learned a lot of things. There are four essential aspects of an indigenous culture. Indigenous agriculture is a life of our indigenous culture. Language is a soul of our indigenous culture. Oral tradition is the mind of our indigenous culture. Our ceremonies, that's the heart of our indigenous culture. Um, the United States does not recognize us. Chickamauga Cherokees. I think we're, we're pretty much an embarrassment to uh, the United States. They, it's very seldom do you see any mention of Chickamauga Cherokees and the Chickamauga resistance, even though it was really a major resistance. There's very seldom mention of that even in history books. Um, probably because it was so major. It, you know, it was like, like one of those things that it almost worked. But um, Missouri, Arkansas, Kansas, they don't recognize us either. Um, Cherokee Nation officially does not recognize us. Many Cherokee Nation members know who we are. In fact, we've always, there's always Cherokee Nation members who, who participate at, at, at Chickamauga uh, ceremonial grounds um, and, and join in community with us. But 
Cherokee Nation Oklahoma officially does not recognize us. Um, no matter, no matter, we are recognized. Uhalotika, creator, Nelanahi, the uh, portioner, Eko, the morning star, uh, the Dojawa, the daughter of the sun, Ajila Karakodiu, the uh, sacred fire. They all recognize us. Our ancestors recognize us. Most importantly, we recognize ourselves as Aniawea, real people, unpretentious people, Chickamauga, Cherokees. Um, our primary, I've talked a lot about, a little bit about ceremonies, but our primary ceremony, you know, we have all sorts of, of ceremonies, but most of them, I mean, well, the last ceremony we've had was a green corn ceremony, the major ceremony, and we'll have the flint corn ceremony in a few weeks. But our primary ceremony is going to water. And it's primary because it, every ceremony, every other ceremony begins with going to water. And um, so um, in the old days, like, you know, every, every Cherokee town was at the conjunction of a river and a creek, and the people would go to the river every day in the morning and go to water and dip themselves seven times. They give tobacco, they dip themselves seven times. And um, nowadays there's, there's different ways of going to water. Sometimes we just throw some water on our heads. Um, the thing is, we, we are mostly water. The water is flowing through us. We see a river, we see a person. That's a long person. But all the rivers, all the creeks, all the, all the streams together really form one long person the life bloodstream of the earth. But you and I are part of that bloodstream because constantly water's flowing through us too. I think they're cutting me off here. But um, Okay, I'll just, I'll just speak up. Um, so going to water is a purific purification ceremony, but it's also a ceremony that reminds us of our place and our relationship with the waters in all the earth. You put something in, the, in that river, you're putting it in yourself. There's no separation, absolutely not. You put something in a stream, in a pond, anywhere, you're putting it in you. Or you're putting it on the land and it flows into the stream, you're putting it in you. Okay, so the going to water ceremony helps us to remember that. It helps us to remember our place and, and we thank the water. We say, Wadon Ama in Cherokee, just thank, thanks, water. Uh, but you can just say, thank you, water, okay? And um, the time to do this normally is in the morning when you first get up. And, and, you know, nowadays people go and they take a shower, right? But you might think of this too. I mean, that's what I tell our people. You know, if, if you can't go to water any other way, Go, go to the, the bathroom sink and say, Wadon Ama, and you slap that water on your head seven times to start the day. And um, so, you know, normally as Cherokees, we give a gift of tobacco. We do that, you know, when we go outside and, and put that on the ground or something. But, but uh, you know, for every ceremony, we go to water before the, the, the 
major ceremony. We go to water, but this is our primary ceremony, and it's purification, but it's centering us as uh, part of something much, much larger than ourselves. And uh, so we've got some buckets out here, and uh, we've got some dippers, and what you're going to do, you're going to go out there, and the buckets, you're going to look toward the east, and the buckets are going to be there. And so what you do is you, there's like 10 buckets, so you form up 10 lines. And you go and you go to that bucket, and there's no tobacco there for you to, to use. I, I thought it might be not too appropriate to just have everybody using tobacco. That's, you know, if you're a traditional Indian person, you probably got some in your pocket that you can use, but but if not, that's okay. I, I want you to just, just say thank you. Turn, you know, you go to the bucket and then turn to the north and say thank you to the north direction. And then, uh, then turn to the west and say thank you to the west direction. And then turn to the south and say thank you to the south direction. Then turn to the east, the direction where the water is going to be, and say thank you to the east. And thank you to the above. Thank you to the below, to the earth upon which you stand. And thank you right here in the center where you're at, where all these lines intersect. And then thank the water. And take a dipper of the water. And you can either do it two ways. You could just put whole dippers over your head, back up so it doesn't go back into the bucket off your head. But you can put seven dippers of water over your head, or you can kind of pour it in your hand and do it like that seven times. This might be more in keeping with Presbyterian ways. You know, <laughs> but, but, uh, but actually, that's how I do it, too. <laughs> Unless I'm going to go to the river and, and dip myself completely, which, uh, you know, I, I do that sometimes. But, but anyway, that's going to water. And... Um, Think about our connectedness with the water. Think about our connectedness with all that is. And it's not just Indian people that are connected. Everybody's connected, whether you know it or not. So um, that's, that's about all I've got to share. <laughs>